If you have your Bible today, and I hope you do, please turn with me to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and while you're turning there, I want to run a few questions by you. Let me test your Bible knowledge, see if you know the answers. Can someone be a very good Christian without attending church? Now, you don't have to answer aloud, but I want you to answer in your heart. I want you to commit yourself to an answer. Question number two, can you reach the fullest levels of Christian maturity apart from the church? Can you know the fullness of God's blessings and God's wisdom apart from the church? Can you live a God-honoring life apart from the church? Can you have your best possible marriage apart from the church? Can you fully understand scripture apart from the church? Can you have the fullest emotional and mental health and vigor apart from the church? Can you raise the most godly children apart from the church? Can you know the fullness of God's joy and God's peace apart from the church? The clear Bible answer to all of those questions is no. Now, you're thinking of some exceptions, aren't you? You're thinking of some situations and some people that, uh, that, that contradict the assertion that I've just made that the church is the key piece to doing all of those things. You may be thinking that my blanket no is overstating the case. Am I wrong? Am I exaggerating? Am I using hyperbole just to make a point? No. Okay. I know I'm not wrong because the Bible supports all of those statements. I know I'm not exaggerating because if anything, I'm understating the case. I want to show you today and over the next few weeks that the church is a much bigger deal than you probably know. Being a part of a healthy, properly ordered church is way more important than you think it is. You have some problems and you will face some obstacles, some challenges in life that will never be overcome apart from the church. The church is critical. It is critical to the health of your faith, the health of your family, and the health of your emotions. And further, there is no substitute for the church. There is nowhere else you can turn for the things that God has ordained in his word to only provide to you through the church. Now, the truth is that most Christians have a very weak theology of the church. And what I mean by that is that we just don't understand all that the Bible has to say about the church, its value, and its place. Most Christians don't really know what the church is. Many Christians don't know what its function is, and most do not know what its purpose is. And so over the next 12 weeks, if the Lord allows, I want to teach you what God's word reveals about the church. Now, my hope in this is really threefold. 
I want to help us to understand the theology of the church. I want us to see the church like God sees the church. Secondly, I want to help us to see some practical applications of this theology. I want to answer some questions. Why do we do this? And why do we do that? There are a lot of peculiar things that happen in churches. There are things that happen in this church that might not happen in another church. There are things that happen in other churches that don't happen in this church. And I want to give you the whys for all of those differences And then finally, I want to show you how the church can be a vital part of your life and the life of your family. My goal is to do all three of those things in every sermon, and I think in 12 weeks, we can cover much of what God's Word says about the church. So let's begin in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to just jump into the middle of the chapter. Verse 11 is where we'll begin. Ephesians 4, 11. The Bible says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, right here in the middle of Ephesians 4, we're talking about the church. Now, there are several subjects that are mentioned in this verse and in the verses that follow that we'll read today that we won't cover today, but these will be subjects for future messages in the next few weeks. But what I want you to notice here in verse 11 is that it is God who is establishing and organizing the church. Look back at verse 11. And he himself, it's speaking of God, God himself, it repeats the word for clarity. He himself gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists. And we'll learn perhaps in the next few weeks exactly what all those different offices mean, what their purpose was and how they play out today. But what I want you to see here is that it is God who is establishing the church and who is ordering the church. He's picking these leaders. He's putting them in place. He's giving them instructions. They have an assigned task. It is God who has established the church and it It is God who organizes the church. God's created it. God's established it, organized it, determined its purpose, and determined its priorities. Look at verse 12. So he's already told us that God has given us these leaders, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. Now, we'll definitely come back to this verse in future weeks because here we see some some key information about the purpose of the church and the organization of the church. But but let's take a look at it just, just briefly here. He says that there are leaders, and he mentions some of those leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. There are others that we'll come back to. So he talks about the leaders. And then he says here in verse 12 that the role of those leaders, we would call them ministers, the roles of those leaders is to equip the church members to do the work of ministry. Now, one of the things that our ministers have really been working hard these last three years to do is to hand off as much of their ministry as possible to church members. One of the things that we've said is that ministers don't need to be spending time doing things that church members can do. 
Not because we want our ministers to be lazy, just the opposite of that, but we want our ministers to be faithful to verse 12, that they should be equipping people to do the work of ministry. And the key to having a church of maturity, we'll see that in the next verse, the key to having a church that is mature, filled with mature Christians, is that the leaders are equipping the members to do the work of ministry. Now look at verse 13. He says, until, we're going to continue this, until all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Now that verse is all about maturity, Christian maturity. He talks about unity in the faith. He talks about having a knowledge, a full knowledge of God's son. He talks about growing in maturity. He talks about growing to the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Now where does this Christian maturity come from? If we're going to be mature Christians, where does, where does that come from according to these verses? Christian maturity comes from the work of the church. When, when church leaders, when church ministers are training church members to be active in the ministry, to be doing the work of ministry, then there is maturing, there is maturing, and it ends up with a mature church. When you find a church that has paid staff who do all of the things that there are to do, what you'll find is a spiritually immature church. Maturity comes through the church when the leaders pass off and train others to do the work. Look at verse 14. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Now, if verse 13 talked about maturity, verse 14 talks about immaturity. He gives us this picture, this picture of immaturity. He talks about little children. Are little children immature? Yes. What do we mean by that? Well, they don't know very much. They're very temperamental. They're unable to lead themselves and feed themselves and take care of themselves. They're immature. But he says also that they are tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching. What does that mean? Well, that is immaturity marked by being wishy-washy, easily deceived, easily distracted, susceptible to many bumps and bruises because you're tossed to and fro. That's a picture of immaturity. That's an immature person, an immature church. They don't know what they believe. They can't stand firm. When hardship comes, they can't stand. They're tossed this way and that way, always distracted. That's a picture of immaturity. So how do these verses tell us we avoid that, that immaturity? Well, he says the key is the church. Look at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Growth is through the church and its end, its purpose is that we would have the character of Christ formed in us. What is perfect maturity for a Christian? Perfect maturity, spiritual maturity, is when the character of Christ is present in, in us. Now notice he says something here at the end of verse 15 that we shouldn't uh, skip over too quickly. He says, who is the head? Christ. So who's the head of the church? It's not me. 
as pastor, and it's not you as church member, but the head is Christ. Now look at 16. For him, the whole body, for Christ, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. We'll break that down in just a moment, but I want you to see that he really uses two metaphors there of the church. He calls the church the body at the beginning of the of the verse, verse 16. In fact, he does that twice in this verse. And then he talks about the body building itself up. He mixes metaphors a little bit there because here he talks about the church as a building that's being added onto and constructed. So we'll learn what those mean in a moment. All those verses, 11 through 16, let's look back and see if we can learn four practical truths to help us get started in this long series about the church. So truth number one, God created the church. That probably doesn't surprise you. We may get to one or two that will surprise you in a moment. The first one doesn't surprise you, but I still think we get this wrong often. God created the church. There are some false beliefs that many people hold and that all of us are susceptible to. I know I am. There's some some false beliefs that cause us to confuse the issue God created the church. Let me give you those. Number one, people think of the church as a building or an event. Sometimes, I'll come back to that, people think of the church as a gift that has been handed down to us from previous faithful generations. Sometimes people think of the church as just a convenient solution to a thorny problem. And so those ways of seeing the church cloud in our minds the truth that God created the church. Let me explain. People wrongly think of the church as a building or an event. So let me give you some statements that should not make any sense, but they do. (laughs) And this is, um, I'm guilty of these. These are things I've said these are things you've said. And when I, when I give you these statements, you're not going to be confused about them. You're going to, they're going to make perfect sense to you, but they shouldn't make sense to you. Statement number one, I'm headed to the church. What do we mean when we say that? We mean that we believe a, the church is a, is a location, right? With an address. I'm headed to the church. Sometimes we'll say, what time does church start? That shouldn't make any sense. What time does the color blue start? Okay. I mean, it's a, it, it ought to be just as nonsensical as that. But we think of the church as a place or an event. It's not. How long is church? Oh, how long is church? <laughs> that shouldn't make any sense to us. How long is family? Um, A fourth question, where is your church? Where is your church? So these kinds of statements, and I've made them, I make them often, I'm afraid. They betray our thinking of the church as a place or an event. The church is not something we purchased. It is not something we built. It is not something we've scheduled. God created the church. 
Schedules, we create those. Buildings, we built those. But the church is something God built. Now, the second thing I mentioned that confuses people about God creating the church is this. People wrongly think of the church as a gift handed down by previous generations of believers. Now, certainly, our our church benefits from godly, faithful, generous saints who have gone before us. You can see that in our facilities. We have all these facilities fully paid for. We don't owe a penny on these facilities. Why is that? Because faithful Christians, a generation ahead of us, they sacrificed and they paid for those facilities, these facilities. We, we see their contributions and our traditions and our heritage. Our church has a great heritage, a heritage of preaching and teaching God's word, a heritage of faithfulness, a, 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 a great heritage and a great reputation in our community. Those are things that are possible today because of the faithful servants here in this church for generations. But often churches get more called up in seeking to honor the legacy of previous generations than honoring the true creator and the founder of the church. And not only is that the wrong thing to do, but those previous generations wouldn't want us to do that. They didn't build this great church so that we would honor them. They built this church so that we would honor God. But oftentimes churches struggle with that. We must remember that the church is not the gift of previous generations, but the church is the gift of God, its creator. The third reason that we get confused about this idea that God created the church is that people wrongly think of the church as a convenient solution to a problem. Uh, Often people see the church as just an organization that was created to solve some problems. Uh, They think of the church as a product of man's strategies, uh, Christian strategies to be sure, but we see the church as this organization just designed to meet needs and solve problems, but that's not the case. Now let's think about businesses. Let's think about the businesses on North Street. So every business on North Street, and there are a bunch of them, every business on North Street is there because some business person saw a need or a problem and they thought perhaps they could solve that problem, they could meet that need, and they they opened a business in order to do that. And so there was a need and a problem. They created a business that was, was strategically designed to meet that need, and there you go. Sometimes I'll hear people say, Why do we have so many car washes, donut stores, and vape stores in Nacogdoches? Now, you know the answer? It's because we have so many dirty cars, hungry bellies, and whatever motivates people to vape. I'm not sure what that is. Those those places are there to meet a need in our community or a perceived need in our community, and they are specifically designed to to meet that need. Some people think of the church in a similar way, that we're just here to, as a convenient solution to a problem. Uh, you hear that in statements that people make, and again, I'm guilty of making these very same statements, but you'll hear people say things like this, people, uh, pastor rather, uh, I think if we did such and such, more people would come to church. 
Or pastor, if we changed such and such, people would like it better. Or pastor, if we were more involved in this, uh, then people would be happier. Now listen, of course we want to reach more people. We want our church to grow. It has grown in recent years and we want to continue to see it grow. And of course, we would rather people be happier than unhappier, right? Just for your pastor, okay? It is no fun pastoring a bunch of unhappy people. We're all for growth and we're all for happiness. But the church is not just some business plan or some sales strategy or some marketing campaign that we can adjust on the fly. God created the church. And guess who sets the priorities of the church? God sets the priorities. Who sets the strategy? God sets the strategy. Who determines the ends and the means to the ends? God determines that. So ultimately, the effectiveness of a church is not measured by how many people attend or how happy those people are. Ultimately, the measure of the effectiveness of a church is how pleased God is with the church. I think some of the largest churches in the state of Texas would fail the test of the pleasure of God, even though they might pass the test of their attraction to the community. Now, that doesn't mean that large is bad or that successful growth is unhealthy. It just means we must remember God created the church, God orders the church, and the church belongs to him. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 16, verses 17 and 18, he said, you are Peter. He's talking to Peter and some of the disciples. He said, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Whose church? His church. Who will build it? He will build it. Where will he build it? What will be the basis of its foundation? The rock he has chosen. The rock he has chosen. So the, the, the first thing we just must remember, so we begin this study of the church, is that God created the church. The second thing is this. The church is much more than just an organization. Now, there are a lot of good organizations in America. Uh, I think about the Rotary Club, the Red Cross, Wounded Warriors, Love, Inc., Heartbeat Crisis Pregnancy Center, Boys and Girls Club, Solid Foundation. I could go through a whole long list, and many of those are right here in Nacogdoches. And, and those organizations, they perform a very vital function, and they deserve, many of them, our generous support. But listen, the church is not a nonprofit organization. It's not a civic organization. It's something different than that, and I contend it's something more than that. Now, the church will share some things in common at times with those organizations. And we might even uh, work to solve some of the same problems that those organizations work to solve. We may partner with some of those organizations, and we do. But the church is something very different. And the best way to point that out now, and we'll see more of this in the days to come, but let me just give you some of the titles of the church, some of the ways God refers to his church in the Bible. And there are about 25 or 30 of these. I'm just going to give you three or four. But listen to the titles. You'll be able to tell from the titles that the church is not just another organization, not even another good organization. Listen to some of these titles. God calls the church the dwelling place of God. 
That's pretty significant, isn't it? Ephesians 2.22, the church is the dwelling place of God. That's not an organization. That's something more. Revelation 1.20, the Bible calls the church the golden lampstand of God. Revelation 21.9, and you also see this in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, I believe. The church is called the bride of Christ. Now just let that sink in. That is so personal. My bride, the love of my life. I would give anything for my bride. I cherish my bride. I, I look after my bride. I pray for my bride. I, I provide for my bride. I, I love on my bride. I, I want to be a blessing to my bride. She's not an organization. She's not um, just a, uh, someone who fulfills some tasks. She's my bride. When Jesus looks to the church, he says, the church is my bride. As I said, we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come, but that's not an organization, right? And then the body of Christ, Ephesians 1. We saw that, in fact, here in Ephesians 4, and it's also in 1 Corinthians 12 and some other places, the body of Christ. We'll, that speaks to the function of the church. It's, it's, it's not just an organization. It is the hands and feet of Christ. So we learn here, that the church is more than an organization. Well, let's get to number three and, and four. We're going to get more personal as we go. Number three, the church is one of God's greatest gifts to believers. It's one of the greatest gifts to believers. If you're a believer, the church is one of God's greatest gifts that he has bestowed upon you. You know, we live in a fallen world. There's problems all around us heartaches, snares, temptations, enemies. And there are problems inside of us. There are weaknesses. There are temptations, pride. And so God has given us three primary gifts to get us from lost in our sins to I fought the good fight, I finished the race. To get a person from lost in his sins to I finished the race faithfully. God has given us three gifts to help us do that. Do you know what they are? Number one, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, 16, when I leave, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. And that's one of the most valuable gifts, the person of the Holy Spirit. A second gift he's given us is the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. The Bible is a special gift. And the third gift God has given to us is the church. That's the message of the verses we read in Ephesians 4, especially that, that last verse, verse 16, when it talks about how the body of Christ functions to strengthen the sinews and the ligaments and, and hold the muscles together so that there would be maturity and strength and resilience. God has given us the church, and that's one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us. Listen, church, you were never meant... You are never meant to live in this sin-filled world apart from the church. I meet with people from time to time and they, they're just so frustrated. 
How in the world can I raise a family in this sin-filled world? How in the world can I keep my mind and heart pure in this sin-filled world? How can I, how can I have a godly marriage in this sin-filled world? How can I have peace and joy? Well, listen, you can't. You can't apart from the church. Your marriage was never meant to survive apart from the church. Your child rearing was never meant to succeed apart from the church. Your joy and peace were never expected to remain apart from the church. Sometimes people try to tell me that they're living a God-honoring life apart from the church. And I'm kind, but I'm, I am straightforward with them. No, you're not. Apart from the church, you're, well, Ephesians 4.16, you're like a muscle without a ligament. Uh, you're like a muscle that's not connected to anything. You're, you're, you're like a coal that has been removed from the fire. I like to grill, and I fill up my grill with uh, charcoal. If you don't use charcoal in your grill, listen, you're not grilling or you're not a real man. All right? Write that down. All these electric and gas and pellet grills. I don't know what the world's coming to. But I put the charcoal in the grill like a man was meant to do. Those coals get hot. But if you reach in there with tongs and you pull one of those red hot coals out of that grill and you set it to the side, what'll happen? It just goes out. Because that coal needs the heat of the other coals. And the other coals, frankly, need the heat of that coal. It diminishes things on both sides of the equation. But I tell those people that, that tell me I don't like the church, which by the way, that's a, that's a pretty dangerous thing to say. Telling God you don't like the church would be like you coming to me and telling me you don't like my wife. You know what? I don't like yours either, okay? <laughs> no, I'm not going to listen to an insult like that. So people say, I don't like the church, but I'm going to grow a strong, mature Christian life. No, you're not. You're the coal that has been set to the side. It's losing its heat. You're like a single brick in a ditch. If you got a lot of bricks, you can build a, well, you can build something. You can build a something, you can build something that will bring protection and warmth and protection from the elements and something that's beautiful and useful. But just one brick is, well, there's no value in one brick. Without the church, we will be like little children tossed by waves and blown in every direction. Ephesians 4.14. Listen, the church needs you. And, and, and that's, that's practically true and biblically true. That, by the way, is not going to be the focus of this, um, uh, this series. We'll talk some about that. But what I want you to learn is not that the church needs you. I want you to learn the biblically accurate message, you need the church. With all of its bumps and warts, with all of its imperfections and imperfect leaders and people, you still need the church. The church is one of God's greatest blessings for believers. Now, number four, this one may surprise you. The church is plan A 
for what the Lord wants to do in your life. The church is plan A, plan A for what the Lord wants to do. Now, I want to go back to that last verse we read, verse 16, Ephesians 4. It says, for him, the whole body. Now, body means church there. Body, the body of Christ, shorthand for that. That's what he's referring to. For him, the whole body of Christ, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament. So all these different pieces working together, ligaments are only valuable because they're connected to other ligaments, to bones and to muscles. And so every supporting ligament, supporting refers to the fact that it is connected, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love, building itself up, bringing maturity. By the proper working, it works in a certain way. There's a proper way to do church. For each individual part, it impacts everybody. What do you think it means that the church is the body of Christ? That's one of the most important phrases, I think, in the entire Bible. What does it mean that the church is the body of Christ? Well, it means, first of all, that whatever the Lord wants to do in Nacogdoches, he primarily is going to do it, if he does do it, through his church. Just as if I'm going to pick up this Bible, if my brain, if my mind wants to pick up this Bible, my mind tells my body, it tells my arms and my hands and my fingers to lift down, to reach down and to grab hold and to lift up. And that's how I pick up my my Bible. It's my body that performs that. How is it that God works in our community? Sometimes people get this wrong. They think, well, we just pray and God's going to do a miracle. Well, God can do whatever God chooses to do. I won't limit God. And I've seen God do some pretty amazing things. But generally, the way God does his work in Nacogdoches and every other city on this planet is not by a miracle. If we pray for the poor, it's not very likely that they're going to go to their cupboard and miraculously poof there's going to be some Kellogg's Raisin Bran, okay? How does God typically work? What does the Bible say about how God typically works? God, Jesus, who is the head, tells his body, which is the church, and the church works. And we had a few weeks ago hundreds of boxes of food over here in our south parking lot We got word out in the community, some of our lay leaders just took this thing on and did an amazing job, and we had hundreds and hundreds of cars line up wanting food, people who were hungry, and our people passed out food, and hundreds of people in our community took food home and put it in their cabinet. That's how God got food in their cabinet, with his body, the hands and feet of Christ. I stood out there and watched and, and just was amazed. Just one of the most encouraging things I've seen in a very long time. And all I could help, all I could think was I'm looking at the hands and feet of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. How does God plan to impact Nacogdoches through us and other good churches? There are good churches in our community. There might be some that aren't, but there are some that are, and God plans to work through the body of Christ, those churches impact the community. But that's not the point of the message. Listen, what else does it mean that the church is the body of Christ? 
It means not only that what God wants to do in Nacogdoches, he's going to do through his body, the church. It means that what God wants to do in you, he wants to do through his body, the church. What is your need? What is your what is the need in your marriage? What is the need in your family? What is the need in, in, in your heart? What is the need in your, in your peace and your joy or your struggles or your fears or, or your loneliness? You know how God wants to meet those needs? He wants to meet it through his body, the church. When you're involved in church, when you're engaged in church, when you embrace the body of Christ here, God meets your needs through the church. That's what it means that the church is the body of Christ. The church is the answer to your prayer. Have you prayed some prayers? Most of the prayers you've prayed, the answer to that prayer is going to be found in the church. The church is God's strategy for you. The church is the hands and feet of God for you. The church is God's plan A for your life. I was reading, I did a ton of reading this week uh, on the church and all kinds of different books. And I, I read a sermon that someone preached and a different sermon than this, of course, but I read a sermon that someone preached and he was, he was making this point about the importance of the church. And he said something that just, I had to read it two or three times before I could decide if I even agreed with it. But I do. I think it's biblical. And I don't think I could say it better than he said it. So I'm just going to read it to you, okay? You have, he stood before his church and said this. It was a sermon he preached. You have no right asking for the power of God in your life if you have separated yourself from the means of that power, if you've been at this church for a while and you refuse to get involved, quit asking God to help because you have separated yourself from the means of God's power. What he told his church was quit praying that God will help you if you're not in the church. If you're not engaged, if you're not plugged in, if you're not in worship, if you're not in small groups, if you're not serving or going on mission trips or a part of the women's ministry or in one of our men's transform groups, it, if you are not in those things, here's, here's the picture. There is a crisis in your life and you see the one who can help you and you cry out, I need help. But then you run and hide. That would be foolishness. God wants to help you. And he is willing to mobilize his hands and his feet to work in your life. But the hands and feet of Christ is the church. The church of the living God. The church is God's plan A. Plan A for what he wants to do in your life. We're going to talk a lot about the church in the next few weeks, but let me just tell you right now how to unite with the church. I know I've left questions unanswered. I know, but let me tell you how to unite with the church. To unite with the church, number one, you have to be a child of God. To be in the church family, first you have to be in God's family. 
To be in God's family, we recognize that we're guilty of sin. Sin separates us from God. We're hopeless in our sins. But we trust what Christ has done for us. We surrender our lives to him. We pray a prayer that sounds like this, perhaps. Father, I know I'm guilty of sin and I'm hopeless in my sin, but I believe that Jesus died for me and I believe his death on the cross for my sins is enough to cover the guilt of my sins. And I can't believe, I cannot imagine why he would do that, but he did and I'm thankful and I trust that and I surrender my life to you. I'll mess up and I'll fail and I'll fall, but I'm telling you right now, I wave the white flag, I surrender, I want to be a part of your family. Bible says God will adopt us into his family. To be a part of the church, first have to be a part of the family of God. And then, to be a part of the church, well, there are simple steps. They're biblical steps. Sort of biblical. They are biblical, but one's baptism. All the members of our church have been baptized. Uh, That's just one of those peculiar things. It's commanded in Scripture, and it's one thing that we share in common here. We're baptized. Another thing we do here, and this isn't a a verse in the Bible, but we have a class. Because if you're going to join something, we want you to know what it is that you're joining. We want to know what you can expect of us and what we can expect of you. There's a class. The next one is Wednesday. As uh, As it happens, you can just call the church and say, I want to come. It's just one class, one class. Probably ought to be 20 classes, okay? So don't complain. It's just one class, last hour and a half, two hours. And then we share with the church that you are, that you want to unite with our church. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. Here's the, here's the question. I got four seconds. Here's the question. Whatever your need is, whatever you want God to do, he likely wants to do it through his church. How can you be more engaged with the hands and feet of Christ for your life and for your family. Father in heaven, we love you, we love Christ, and we love the bride of Christ. Show us, show us how we can invest our lives in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together in both services as we respond to the Lord.